Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Tuesday, February 6, 2024. Uh, there are a couple of anniversaries. On February 6, 1840, British and Maori representatives signed the Treaty of Waitangi, uh, officially making New Zealand a British colony. The Maori were looking for British protection from France and for recognition of their own property and individual rights. Under the terms of the treaty, those rights were supposed to be protected, but it only took British colonial authorities a couple of decades to thoroughly breach that part of the arrangement. On February 6, 1981, Uganda's National Resistance Army rebelled against the government of Milton Obote following a disputed election in December. This marked the start of the most important phase of the Ugandan Civil War, or Ugandan Bush War as it's sometimes known, though the conflict had begun in October 1980 with an upri uprising in the West Nile region. The NRA captured Kampala in January 1986, overthrowing the military government that had ousted Obote in a coup the year before. Uh, the rebels then set up a new government under their leader, Yauri Museveni, who has been president of Uganda ever since, uh, because uh, the Ugandans love him so much, I guess. Uh, it's been a long time. Let's get into the news. We start with the Middle East and Israel-Palestine, where Hamas has finally delivered its response to the latest proposal for a ceasefire in Gaza. Reading between the lines a bit, it does not sound terribly promising. Uh, while Qatari Prime Minister Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdurrahman bin Jassim Al Thani did tell reporters in Doha that, quote, in general, it is positive, end quote. He also noted that the response, quote, includes some comments, end quote. So clearly the answer wasn't just yes. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden, in a somewhat disjointed appearance at the White House, characterized the response as, quote, a little bit over, the, a little over the top, rather, end quote, which, you know, doesn't seem good. Uh, and Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Doha with the Qatari PM said that other parties to the talk quote, are studying the response intensively, end quote, and insisted that ceasefire talks are, quote unquote, continuing. I can't tell if he was trying to convince the reporters or himself that everything's fine. Maybe both. Uh, without knowing what the comments were, it's hard to know how close this train is to complete derailment. But Hamas has consistently maintained that it wants an outline of a full ceasefire and the release of a very large number of prisoners by the Israeli government, including sensitive cases like Palestine Liberation Organization figure Marwan Barghouti. Uh, it's reasonable to assume those are the sticking points. Uh, what isn't known is whether Hamas leaders are all on the same page in terms of their approach to these talks. The extended delay while they deliberated internally suggests some difference of opinion, and that fits with reporting over the past few years that has speculated that the group's leadership in Gaza and its political leadership in exile don't always see eye to eye. Interestingly, and I think contrary to how it looks from the outside, the Wall Street Journal has reported that Hamas's Gaza leadership has been pushing for compromise in the name of getting a ceasefire, while the leaders in exile are insisting that they hold out for their maximal demands. If that's true, it's certainly easy for them to stick to their principles when they're not the ones starving. Uh, in other items, Israeli officials say they've confirmed the deaths of 31 of the 136 hostages who are still in Gaza, a shocking figure that could increase public pressure on Israeli leaders to work out a ceasefire deal regardless of Hamas's demands. They're reportedly investigating the possible deaths of another 20 hostages. The causes of their deaths are unknown. According to the New York Times, an Israeli assessment holds that some were killed on October 7th and their bodies were taken to Gaza anyway, while others died of injuries suffered in the attacks of that day. Some number may have been killed in subsequent Israeli airstrikes, though I doubt there will ever be any official acknowledgement of that. 
Uh, Argentine President Javier Malay visited Israel on Tuesday and promised to move his country's embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So uh, at least we've got that to look forward to, right? Uh, And the UK's Channel 4 news outlet has reviewed the Israeli government's five-page intelligence dossier outlining its case that the United United Nations Relief and Works Agency employees participated in the October 7th attacks and that dozens more UNRWA workers are linked somehow to Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad. The network has concluded that the document offers, quote, no evidence to its explosive new claim, end quote. I suspect that will be of small comfort to the Gazan civilians who wind up suffering because the U.S. and other Western states cut off funding to the agency over what may well uh, have been a falsehood or at least a greatly exaggerated accusation. In Syria, an apparent Israeli missile strike killed at least five people on Tuesday in a residential neighborhood outside the Syrian city of Homs. According to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, three of the five were civilians, while the identities of the others were still unknown at time of writing. Uh, This strike, or time of recording, I guess, uh, this strike was part of a larger barrage that Reuters says targeted an air base and other military facilities in the greater vicinity of Homs. In Turkey, a pair of attackers killed one person outside Istanbul's Justice Palace courthouse on Tuesday before being gunned down themselves by police. Authorities are claiming that the attackers are affiliated with the leftist Revolutionary People's Liberation Party Front, uh, or in its Turkish acronym DHKP-C, which has been designated as a terrorist group by Turkey and a number of other states, including the U.S. The DHKP-C has been mostly dormant for a few years now, but it has attacked this same courthouse in the past. And Yemen, the Houthis attacked two more commercial vessels in the Red Sea on Tuesday, apparently damaging both. Neither attack caused any casualties, and the damage uh, seems to have been relatively minor in both cases. Uh, in Asia, in Kazakhstan, President Kasim Jomar Tokayev wasted no time replacing the prime minister he fired on Monday, uh, appointing Oljas Bektanov as his new PM on Tuesday. Bektanov was serving as Tokayev's chief of staff until Tuesday's promotion, so he's not an especially well-known quantity with respect to his political inclinations. He spent a bit over a year running Kazakhstan's anti-corruption agency, but it's unclear whether Tokayev is appointing him for that reason. What is clear is that the president is looking for better economic performance from his new cabinet, which is mostly the same as his old cabinet, with the exception of the new prime minister and some changes at the top of a few economy-related ministries. In Myanmar, the Bangladeshi government summoned that country's ambassador in Dhaka on Tuesday to lodge a complaint over recent fighting that has spilled across the border. A stray mortar shell fired during clashes between Myanmar security forces and the rebel Arakan army killed at least two people in Bangladesh on Monday and at least 264 Myanmar border guards, eight of them seriously injured, have fled into Bangladesh in recent days to escape the fighting. In Thailand, the Thai government and the rebel Barisan Revolusi Nacional Group began a new round of peace talks in Kuala Lumpur on Tuesday, just about one year after the previous round collapsed. The BRN is a Malay nationalist group that has become the dominant force in the longstanding southern Thailand separatist insurgency. That conflict has remained at a fairly low level of intensity over the past 20 years, but has still killed more than 7,300 people. Uh, Initial talks are focused on a ceasefire possibly for the upcoming Islamic month of Ramadan, though Thai officials seem to be interested in a longer-term cessation of hostilities. 
onto Africa and Senegal, where the Economic Community of West African States on Tuesday asked the Senegalese government to reconsider uh, its decision to postpone this month's presidential election until at least December. The postponement was the latest in a string of controversies surrounding this vote, going back to the protest last year that forced President Macky Sall to disavow any plan to run for an unconstitutional third term, and that continued through the Senegalese Constitutional Council's disqualification of two prominent opposition candidates last month. There's every reason to believe that Sall is trying to engineer either an extension of his own presidency, which he's already done, at least through the end of the year, or the election of his chosen successor, Prime Minister Amadou Ba. This looks like a self-coup, though ECOWAS at this point does not appear to be preparing any of its usual post-coup sanctions. In South Sudan, another incident of intercommunal violence has left at least 26 people dead in western Bahr el-Ghazal state. Uh, again, the perpetrators appear to have been armed bandits from Warop state, which attacked or who attacked a town in western Bahr el-Ghazal on Monday over some sort of land dispute and killed at least eight soldiers and 10 civilians in the process, at least eight people from Warop presumably the attackers, were also killed. Uh, violent mobs from Warop State have been implicated in attacks recently against civilians in South Sudan's Lake State and in the disputed Abye region on the Sudanese border. We have covered these uh, in previous editions of this newsletter. Uh, in Somalia, at least four explosions reportedly ripped through a busy market in Mogadishu on Tuesday, killing at least 10 people and wounding 20 more. This was presumably an Ashabab terrorist attack, though at time of writing, the exact causes of the explosions remained unknown, uh, and there had been no claim of responsibility. Uh, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, allied Democratic Forces fighters are believed to have been responsible for attacks on several villages in the eastern DRC's Ituri province on Monday evening that left at least 11 people dead in total. That figure may rise. There's at least one local report that 13 people were killed, and it often takes authorities time to fully assess the results of one of these rampages. In Europe and Ukraine, the Ukrainian military has, for reasons surpassing my comprehension, decided to send special forces personnel to Sudan to assist the Sudanese government in its conflict against the Rapid Support Forces Group. The RSF has in the past received support from the Wagner Group, or whatever passes for Wagner these days, and apparently it still is because the Kyiv Post has published video showing Ukrainian operatives in Sudan interrogating a Russian prisoner they had captured. Said video is the clearest indication of Ukrainian involvement in the Sudanese conflict, though there have been a handful of other indications prior to this. Whatever Wagner or its successor is or is not doing in Sudan is somewhat beside the point. The Ukrainian military is by several accounts suffering from an acute manpower shortage. Why then is it sending special forces to Sudan to do gotcha videos with Russian prisoners? Your guess is as good as mine. Uh, there's some public relations benefit to showing Russian forces acting in malign ways around the world, I suppose, but PR isn't going to change the facts on the ground in Ukraine. Speaking of which, those facts now include reports that the eastern Ukrainian city of Avdivka uh, is once again under heavy pressure and may be on the verge of falling into Russian hands. Uh, maybe those special forces soldiers could be better used there, just spitballing. Uh, in the Netherlands, uh, Dutch extremist or xenophobe Geert Wilders' dream of becoming prime minister took a bit of a hit on Tuesday when one of the parties 
He's trying to bring in to a governing coalition, the center-right new social contract party, walked away from the negotiations. NSC won 20 seats in November's election, and losing it probably forecloses on Wilder's chances of building a stable majority government. NSC leader Peter Omzeit, uh, really not not going to do the Dutch thing, sorry. Uh, but he did, however, leave open the possibility of supporting a minority government involving the three remaining parties in the coalition talks. So Wilders does still have a path to forming a cabinet. Uh, moving on to the Americas, in Colombia, the Colombian government and the National Liberation Army, ELN, agreed on Tuesday to extend their current ceasefire for at least six more months. As part of the deal, ELN leaders agreed to halt their practice of kidnapping for ransom while the ceasefire is in effect. Both parties also agreed not to recruit children younger than 15, which will presumably affect ELN's operations uh, a bit more than the government's and to establish a fund to support the peace process. Details regarding how it would be funded and what it would be supporting exactly are still unclear. Uh, Also left unclear uh, is the status of the 38 or more captives ELN is currently believed to be holding. In Haiti, uh, I apologize here, but I dropped an AP video into the newsletter tonight uh, of protests that are still ongoing across Haiti, calling for the resignation of Prime Minister Ariel Henry. Uh, Obviously, I I can't uh, let you see the video on the voiceover here, but if you click over to the newsletter uh, on uh, on, uh, foreignexchanges.news, you can watch it for yourself. Uh, And finally, in the United States, well, there's a couple of things, actually. The U.S. Senate on Tuesday confirmed Kurt Campbell as the Biden administration's new deputy secretary of state, the number two official in the State Department. Campbell replaces Wendy Sherman, who left in July. Campbell's previous job was Indo-Pacific Affairs Coordinator for the National Security Council, so his nomination has been seen as a sign of the administration's focus on China as the top U.S. foreign policy challenge. And finally, finally, the official story regarding the drone strike that killed three U.S. soldiers in Jordan last month and has already prompted one wave of U.S. retaliation with more to come is that U.S. personnel confused the attack drone with a returning reconnaissance drone and failed to activate their base's defense systems. But according to the Intercept's Ken Klippenstein, the base didn't actually have any effective defense systems uh, in the first place. And the official story is a cover-up. He's got a a scoop here uh, that just came out today. I'll read you a bit of it. Uh, The lethal attack followed a spate of one-way drone attacks uh, on U.S. bases in neighboring Syria and Iraq in recent weeks, an escalation by anti-American militants since the outbreak of Israel's war on the Gaza Strip. No one was reported killed in the previous attacks, including one on Atanf in Syria, a base just 12 miles away from Tower 22, the Jordanian facility. Despite the repeated attacks and a well-funded Pentagon's investment in counter-drone technology, the U.S. military failed to stop the Tower 22 drone attack. Quote, the air defenses were minimal, if any, uh, end quote, an Air Force airman who served at Tower 22 last year told The Intercept, quote, we relied heavily on aircraft from MSAB, uh, end quote. This is Moafik Salta Air Base, a nearby Jordanian base that houses a U.S. military presence. Quote, to stop any targets, uh, we had a radar system called TPS-75 that was broken 80% of the time I was there, end quote. 
a preliminary military investigation reported in the Washington Post on Tuesday concluded that the drone was never detected, likely by flying too low for the base's antiquated radar system. Just a week before the attack, the military announced an $84 million contract to work on a replacement to the TPS-75, a mobile ground-based radar array from the 1960s. Uh, This is me again. You would think that if the U.S. military with its $800 billion plus budget is going to deploy soldiers to vulnerable outposts in high risk parts of the world, uh, it would the least it could do would be to provide them with adequate defenses. But apparently you would be wrong. Uh, That's all for us tonight. Thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter and especially to those of you who are foreign exchanges subscribers uh, making this newsletter possible. Until next time, take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye bye.